Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. You've probably noticed the rising prices and cost of living this year. Everyone is feeling the squeeze on pocketbooks as everyday essentials are becoming more and more expensive due to inflation. I'll be the first to admit a lack of knowledge in economics and in the factors that drive inflation. That's why I'm glad to welcome Tho Bishop to the show today. Tho and I discussed a lot in this conversation. We began by talking about Ludwig von Mises and the Austrian School of Economics. Tho then explained the bad monetary policies and history that has led to the economic woes that we're facing now. We finished by talking about Tho's recent spiritual journey to Christianity and what he's learned. I've got to say that I was impressed by Tho's intellectual honesty and thoroughly enjoyed our time together. Tho Bishop is an assistant editor for Mises Wire. Prior to working for the Mises Institute, he served as deputy communications director for the House Financial Services Committee. His articles have been featured in The Federalist, The Daily Caller, and Business Insider. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you can get all of the latest content sent directly into your inbox. Visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes right on your homepage. If you're helped by this content, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review or share the show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. This only takes a minute of your time, but whenever you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into my conversation with Tho Bishop. Tho, welcome to the podcast. Uh, glad to be here. Well, glad to have you here, man. Uh, I've been looking forward to having you on. I've been following you for on, on Facebook for a little while and really enjoyed your uh, your ideas and commentary, thoughts on a lot of different topics. It's been uh, an enlightening follow for sure. But why don't you, for our audience who are just getting to know you, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are now working at Mises, what your role is there and how you got there. Yes, I'm an associate editor for the Mises Institute, which means I get a write articles and all sorts of different types of content and work with a lot of great economists, a lot of great scholars um, and try to promote their work, which is a great honor. Um, I think the organization certainly made a, a lasting impact on my life. And, and I think that the ideas of Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard and the Austrian school that, you know, were there to promote, I think are, are important, not simply for, you know, just for civilization itself. I think there's a lot of important value there. Um, Prior to that, I worked for the House Financial Services Committee. Um, I was a kind of a Ron Paul, you know, 2012, a little bit before that, but uh, kind of a Ron Paul baby back in the day. Um, and when you coupled that with the financial crisis, that's what really got me interested in Austrian economics um, back then. And so I was given an opportunity to actually be able to work when the Tea Party took over in 2010, um, you know, work with the Financial Services Committee. Um, I was kind of the, the Ron Paul's mole. Uh, trying to get some good Austrian economics content out in front of members and staffers and things like that. So I got a little bit of time in DC, um, yeah. a little over three years, and then um, been with the Institute since about 2015. And uh, again, one of my favorite organizations prior to that. And uh, so I've been living a very good life. Yeah. 
Yeah, Ron Paul is originally who got me interested in politics. I had no interest at all before that. Um, didn't understand much at all. Still don't. I, uh, I'm, I'm far from an expert and certainly learning every day. But uh, but yeah, Ron Paul, is uh, he, was, he was the guy who kind of gave me my political awakening back in the day and uh, definitely still uh, still hold to a lot of things that I learned from him back then. What is it that uh, got you that, that, that first step towards working in DC and economics and so on? Uh, did you go to school for that? Is, was it always something you were interested in or was there something prior to, uh, was it 2012 you said that um, when you started working in DC in the house and all? Well, I, I'd always been interested in politics as a whole. Uh, my, my parents were uh, political consultants. My, my father was a political strategist for a very long time. Um, he actually helped uh, with Ron Paul's first successful special election campaign back in the day. So um, he also helped Newt Gingrich get elected. So maybe a trade-off there. But uh, but so I, I grew up, you know, you know, listening to Rush Limbaugh all the time and and really consuming a bunch of political content, you know. And so being a high schooler and you know, two, you know, the, during the two thousands during the Bush years, you know, I was very, uh, you know, started off as a big supporter of the Iraq War, um, kind of just a, a general supporter of you know, the Bush administration as a whole. And then I started realizing as time went on, there's things, you know, I, I came much harder to defend the Iraq war. It became harder to kind of just trust that the Republicans knew exactly what they were doing. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, during the 2008 election, you have Ron Paul come on the stage and, and just start speaking truths that were not, you know, within the kind of neat confines of, you know, Fox News opinion, uh, you know, pieces. And that kind of opened my eyes into a whole different realm of thinking, which, you know, made me interested in, in libertarianism, made me interested in Austrian economics, um, and kind of exploring some of these different sort of rabbit holes. And, uh, so you know, it was, it was, a, a then, you know, just after, after 2010 saying, you know, you, you obviously had this, this big populist sort of uprising against the, the over you know, Obamacare and the abuses of, of, you know, physical spending and, and, and a lot of the economic irresponsibilities that both parties, you know, were promoting, um, you know, that kind of got me, you know, interested and, and, uh, you know, it was just, it was very interesting to be, you know, getting up to DC, kind of seeing behind the the scenes on this, where you start, you know, what are, what are the mechanisms that leads, you know, a generation of Republicans voted on a, you know, physically responsible, you know, sort of, of pushback, you know, leading them to, you know, be you know, voting for all sorts of ridiculous spending packages and, and kind of losing any any sort of backbone they had and in that Ron Paul fervor, um, and and you can definitely see the you know the different tools that uh, DC has to to kind of capture anyone that kind of comes within its orbit, which was again very interesting to see as a young twenty something year old staffer. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting you you mentioned you know uh, going through your own I guess transformation of being an Iraq War defender to hearing Ron Paul speak some truths where it started to become a lot harder and harder to defend it. Uh, it was I, I had a good buddy of mine who was a hardcore uh, Ron Paul supporter. He, he he loved him, talked about him all the time, and uh, we used to pick at him and joke because like you know we would go eat out at we were at Buffalo Wild Wings one time and just out of nowhere he says if i could i'd pay for this meal in gold coins and we're like oh gosh okay <laughs> you know so he was he, he was a character but finally i started to like listen to ron paul and say okay so what, what's with this guy and it was him speaking on the iraq war and, and afghanistan and all that and the things he had to say that it initially would hooked me to saying realizing okay i, I think this guy's on something I, like he's saying something that's really really resonating uh, and something different from what i'm hearing from everyone else 
So yeah, very similar model story with him. Yeah, well, and I think that's, that's kind of the interesting thing about Ron Paul is that you know I think people you know you know there are a lot of of you know kind of generic you know your average like Fox News viewer who you know loved Ron because he would talk about the Constitution and things that the conservative movement you know particularly if you think about like the Reagan years right like you know this this was their mo- motivating sort of ethos right it was we were going to restore the constitution we're going to going to rein in this out of control state but then yep. there'd be it'd be the, the quirky things that he liked to fixate on you know like the fed um you know how, how many times you know did you hear oh well, I, I like ron what ron Paul to say but you know he's a little crazy on the war issue because you know we, we've, we've got to make sure that we're defending our freedoms abroad you know it, it's it's those little things that i think you know, were, were maybe were, were off-putting to some people that i think you know you look back in 2022 you know, th- it was the quirkiness that were the most important things that he was saying, right? You know, the the, the warning of of you know the, the the creeping police state growth, and you know, uh, uh, yeah, those dynamics, those those the things that that made him kind of branded as a conspiracy theorist or kook or whatever. You know, that's a, that's the part of his message that I think are, were the most important things that he was harping on, and I, I think that that time has vindicated him a great deal. I think it's it's. Not a coincidence that you saw Donald Trump tap into a lot of those concerns um, yeah. that that he had that, that not even his son was necessarily good at communicating at. And I think that you know the, the the Republican Party that you have today is a lot more like Ron Paul in 2012 than it was any other candidate on the stage. And I think there's it's been interesting to see that transition over time. Yeah. So anyway, so you were you were in D.C., but now uh, now you're in the free state of Florida, yes. right? And the, be- the, the, uh, the best part of the free state of Florida and the Florida Panhandle. All right, all right, and so so you went from uh, one swamp to another. Yes, I guess, I guess you could say, and um, and you're working with Mises now. Tell us a little bit about the man behind the institution, uh, Ludwig von Mises, and what the institute's all about today. Yeah, well, he, definitely our namesake. Um, you know, the, the reason why it's called Austrian economics is that this this kind of specific school of thought um, was really developed and cultivated at. University of Vienna um, started with, with the work of Karl Menger, um, who was a you know even recognized by the mainstream as being one of the you know original uh, members of what's called the Marginalist Revolution, which was economists you know, trying to you know reckon with that question on you know why why are diamonds valued more than water when water is so much more important for us and it goes into to marginal utility and you know it and and, and you know, that as a means of of understanding value. Um, the Austrian school is, is you know, it's radically subjectivist in its understanding of value. So, you know, dis- dismisses the ideas of the labor theory of value, which are core not only to Karl Marx, um, but were also baked into Adam Smith and a lot of neoclassical economics. Um, and so, even you know, th- there's a lot of different schools of thought that might have you know, like kind of a macro lens. Uh, Milton Friedman, for example, in the Chicago School. You know, they are seen by many as, as some of the most prominent defenders of free markets, but the methodology behind it is very different for the Chicago school than the Austrian school because we we reject the, the use of mathematical modeling. We, we reject these sort of positivist means and, and methods of understanding the economy, um, kind of the, we, we view the distinction between microeconomics and macroeconomics as being false distinctions, right? That, that you know, economics at the end of the day is about understanding human decisions and a you know environment of, of scarce resources that you know w- what what aligns the allocation of these scarce resources in a way to promote human thriving 
um, you know, understanding the kind of all, all costs or essentially opportunity costs and things like that. And so, you know, you 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 open up an Austrian economics book, and you're going to see a lot of words. You know, it, it is it is uh, I think it's been described as a literary form of economics. It's very logical in its presentation of things. Very a lot of you know kind of logical deduction um, is is kind of core to understanding sort of economic laws and, and rules that guide our understanding of the world as it is. Um, where other schools are a lot more mathematical in focus, um, they were they they have a great reliance upon certain sorts of modeling, which can allow with the idea being that we can predict future behavior from these models and try to use that to, to identify changes that need to be made on a policy landscape or, or to, to better understand future performance of a good or service. Right. Um, and so it's, it's a, it is a distinct, different, you know, it's a fundamentally just different view of understanding economics as a discipline in itself rather than a political program it's it's not simply you know, you know the a, a an understanding of austrian economics tends to make you a laissez-faire capitalist but it is not a you know it, you know it's, it's not a, a, a this, you know it, it, it itself is different than those policy outcomes yeah um, yeah and and so that's that's what makes the, the the act of of you know promoting these ideas so so interesting because it's 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 really educational to its core, and so Louis von Mises, who we're named after, he was a um, student of uh, Eugen von Bomvork, who was a student of Menger. So he, he traits right back to to the founder of the school. Um, he himself was a, a veteran of World War One, um, and uh, uh, which yeah, after he'd already written a great book on on money, right? So you just think about. That, that, you know, that, that the massive change of his life, seeing, you know, fellow teachers, professors, seeing his students die in World War One, seeing the collapse of his nation, of, of, of the government, you know, of, of this governing body that he was born into collapse around him. And he, he, thought, a, he thought a great deal of the Habsburg Empire. Um, and then seeing the chaos in between the two world wars, um, he was not only a free market economist, but he was a Jewish free market economist in you know, the Nazis didn't like either part of that. Um, so he actually had to flee his, his home. Um, his, his library was confiscated by the Nazis. I mean, he was, he was high up on the enemies list of the state because they recognized that his ideas were a threat to the Nazi regime. Wow. Um, they tried I to assassinate him in Switzerland, which is where he fled to for a little bit. And he ended up in New York. Um, America at this point became was so far to the left that in FDR's America, he could not get a teach a paying teaching job in the United States university system, in spite of, again, being world renowned as a, a you know, as a pioneer in monetary theory and, and other important issues um, of the day. Um, so he, he ended up actually you know, spent the rest of his life benefiting from uh, uh, you know, enjoying the patronage of, you know, business leaders that recognized that his defense of free markets was very important um, within this increasingly hostile American intellectual environment. And from there at New York, um, uh, he was able to have a, a graduate program at the University of New York paid for by patrons. And from there, he's able to kind of rebuild the Austrian school by bringing in new talents and new scholars, um, one of which is, is Murray Rothbard, who was a founding, uh, founding academic vice president of the Mises Institute, a very prolific scholar in his own right. Um, one of his students back in Austria was F.A. Hayek, who went on to win the Nobel Prize um, the year after Mises died. There's some conspiracies there about how they, you know, they, they didn't want to give Mises that credit because um, he, what he 
was rewarded on was uh, Austrian business cycle theory, which he worked on with, with Mises. So there was a lot of, you know, cr uh, cross collaboration there. Um, but it's, it's interesting when you see the modern day products of this sort of intellectual school, it's not only a lot of, I think, great scholars that around, around the world that have been inspired by his ideas, um, but it's also things like um, uh, Wikipedia um, uh, was inspired by uh, an essay by F.A. Hayek on the use of knowledge in society and, and the way of, of kind of creating, you know, that, that a, 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 a encyclopedia being able being that's edited by the masses is going to have more knowledge than what could be contained by a single writer. Uh -huh. Bitcoin was inspired by, you know, Austrian understandings of, of money. Um, it was kind of modeled after the gold standard that Louis von Mises was, was very much a defender of. And so, you know, you can also see not only these ideas within, you know, ivory towers, which the Austrian school has, has long been discriminated against within mainstream economics, because again, the methodologies are so, so different. Um, but they've, they've paid off, I think in the real world in ways that are very interesting. And I think in a time of, you know, when we're seeing inflation levels at historic highs, I think that very much the same way that in, you know, 2008, 2009, you saw a resurged interest in Austrian economics because of our understanding of booms and busts. I think that you're seeing again today and understand uh, a renewed interest in Austrian economics because we were kind of you know, warning about the inflationary pressures of everything that happened in 2020 in a way that a lot of the mainstream, including the, the central bankers, the Federal Reserve and the like, did not. And so when when you have a, a breakdown of, you know, a recognition that the experts were wrong, and, and when it comes to economics these days, the experts were very wrong, um, that always kind of think leads to a renewed interest in kind of heterodox schools of thinking. And, and the Austrian school would definitely be considered heterodox, um, but I don't think that makes it any uh, but I, I think that that a lot of, of world events are uh, you know demonstrating the value of, of kind of our lens when applied to uh, current issues. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think the mainstream economists got it wrong again recently? And so we're going through, we're about to go into another big recession. Inflation's crazy high. Whenever we kind of went through all of this like 14 years ago, right in 2008. Uh, it seems like there's there's all the, there's there's these recurring financial crises that mainstream economists miss again and again. Yeah. Well, I think there's two, there's two things. One, I think at the most basic level, it was the normalization of the idea that money is simply is is, is naturally an extension of the state, and so it's it's it can be difficult for us to to realize because i mean we, we've grown up in, in an age of, of fiat money right you know, the other yeah. nixon closed the gold window in the in the 70s um americans you know we, we couldn't redeem our, our dollars for gold since fdr um but this era of fiat money where basically the 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 backing of our money is purely the judgment of phds um this is only 50 years old right we had, we had the mm. 50 year anniversary of it last year so um, that is that is, can you, can you just define fiat currency? So, is that so, what is that what it would be? Yeah, like just yeah, it's you know, the, the value of the dollar it is is a product of the government saying it has value. Okay. Um, and so you, you have to pay your taxes in the dollar, right? So therefore, that's what gives it its its you know its its value. Um, the government also protects it from competition of others, right? From other currencies, you know, if if you if you hold gold, right, you have to pay a capital gains tax on it. If you exchange it for dollars, right, and so the 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 backing of the dollar is, you know, is directly connected to the state. 
Um, and the Federal Reserve is an extension of the state, even though it's nominally private. I think that distinction isn't as important as some people make it to be. But you know, essentially, though, when, when you took away what money was, was an independent measure. Um, de- it was a depoliticized measure. And, and if you look at the history of, of, of the gold standard, there's, there's issues with the way that the, the government would come in and intervene um, when you had you know, banks making bad loans, right? And there's, there's different policy mistakes that led to, to various issues under the gold standard. It, it wasn't perfect. Um, you know, actual workings of banks and government you know, still, still you know, found various ways of, of creating issues there. But ultimately, though, there, there's still there, – there's some sort of measure that was independent of political influence that you could kind of use as a, as a, as a measure. You, that went away when you, you took gold out of the system. Um, and again, this is this is only fifty years old, and and what that led to though was a, the creation of monetary economists that bl- started believing in their own powers of of using money itself as a extension of government policy. Now, what happened, and and and, and it, it became increasingly more, uh, uh, you know. There was escalation in the way that it was used, right? You know, from from you know, gold, uh, Alan Greenspan, for example, was able to create a kind of a big cult of personality around him because they they thought that you know they, he was called the maestro because he could you know the, the idea was that that he could use money to lift us out of recessions and and, and be very good at using money as kind of a, a tool to make sure the economy never got too hot, never got too low. Um, but what you know, a, a lot of what you ended up doing was creating business cycles where, you know, when, when you had the stock market, for example, you had the stock market bubble at the you know, 2000, 2001, along with 9-11, um, Greenspan lowered interest rates, which instead of addressing the malinvestment that was made within the stock market, you end up fueling a new bubble, which was the housing crisis, right? So you, so you had the, the housing bubble that then pops in 2008. Yeah. And so again, setting, allowing that, that bad debt to really get to be circled out, the Fed allowed, you know, they bought up a bunch of the bad products from the banks. They flooded the banking system full of cash. Um, and this kind of gets to the second point. The reason why you saw increasing aggression from central bankers after 2008 is that in spite of flooding the banking sector full of cash, we didn't see the price inflation we're seeing now. And so what you had was people thinking that you, you, you had a, a story that professed that, that you know, I could, economic experts could tell themselves that our pri- previous understandings of inflation were wrong because we didn't see consumer price inflation. And therefore, we have more tools at our disposal than we thought. And that leads led to a far more aggressive approach to 2020 and, and, and all of the, the runoff of, of the, you know, dealing with all the ramifications from the COVID regime that, you know, if you, if you look like the, the, the money supply increases 2008 and 2000 you know 2020 it's it's 2020 just dwarfs it and 2008 dwarfed everything that came prior the problem is is that they learned the, lo- the wrong lessons from 2008 because what happened in 2008 is while we didn't have consumer price inflation we had massive asset inflation uh, uh, inflation um you saw stock markets going through the roof you saw um you know uh, 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 different we, we inflated a whole bunch of different bubbles and we, we also paid banks not to lend out money, whereas excess on interest reserves, like we were literally paying banks not to lend it out to the real economy. And so what that did is that created a very protected class of powerful institutions closest to the Fed, big tech, for example, you know, you had a lot of money flowing into big tech, big pharma, um, you know, various uh, uh, military contractors, right? 
um, uh, uh, when when money is printed, it, it doesn't just you know it, it doesn't hit everyone equally. It, it goes through channels that the Federal Reserve controls, right? With with COVID, we printed a whole bunch of money, and we were we were thinking of new ways of, of get, getting it out, right? We we had Trump bucks, we had PPP loans, right? We we printed money and we got it out as many places as possible, and so the, the yeah. you know the tools were different, like the, and 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 the Fed, I think. And, and they're, they're more or less admitting this now. Central bankers didn't expect it to back to, to backfire the way it has, mm-hmm. and 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 I think a, a lot of this is just increasing generations of professional, highly trained economists getting more and more arrogant with the tools of central banking, and 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 believe, very much in the same way that that Fauci was able to grant himself these incredible tools from this role of unelected technocrat, the central bankers have been doing a very similar thing for, you know, at the very least, you know, I, I would argue since Greenspan, but the very least since Bernanke. And there's, you know, they, they overstated, they overthought what they could control. And the scary thing is, and the, the one thing that's been helping America is that we're not alone on this. Um, you know, the, 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 the strength of the dollar comes in the fact that every other central bank with a few exceptions one of them being Russia, actually. Um, every other country has been binging on debt with these low interest rates. Um, they've been engaging in, I mean, Europe's had negative interest rates. Japan's had negative interest rates. Switzerland's had, you know, once upon a time, right, Swiss banks were think, thought to be the best in the world. I mean, the Swiss have been doing a lot of the same reckless, irresponsible spending. And so we've what we've done is that the, the really bad intellectual climate of America, you know, your, your Ivy League trained economists that 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 think that they have all these tools that they really don't they, they they don't have that humility that economics i think really teaches you they they're now you know they're 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 throughout the world and you've had a mass blanket of central bankers all around the world engaging in the same if not worse reckless policy that we've had and now we're in a situation where like they're they're trying to backtrack now and and it's 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 not quite the people that didn't think that, that that inflation was going to be temporary last year are now trying to reassure us that they absolutely know what to do on dealing with inflation now. And I, I think there's a lot of good reasons for us to question that. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's kind of a long-winded answer there, but it's it's the, 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 there are layers and layers to this issue that yeah. you know, this, is, this is a multi-decade long problem that has brought us to the situation we are right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's interesting. So this is the first time I've heard someone uh, or at least that I can remember. Maybe I heard someone else saying and, and just missed it. But first time I've heard someone connect the inflation we're experiencing right now to policies in 2008. It seems as though everyone else I've been hearing has only been referring it or, or, or relating it back to all the stimulus packages that we had uh, right. in, during COVID, which I guess I, I guess it makes sense. The, those stimulus packages found their origin in what the government did in 2008, but those were going directly to certain industries, right? Right. So we, we created, so, so the policy tools that were used in 2020 were created in 2008. And, okay. and more importantly, yeah. they, they, they were then used in 2010. And, and that's important because that, that was after the crisis. And so what, what basically you had is that we, we had a radical transformation in how central banks operate, which is kind of a big deal. I mean, it, it would be like, completely throwing out the operations of, I mean, which we, we've also kind of done this, but it'd be like completely throwing out the, the, the standard operations of like how the, how Congress, how a bill is passed, right? We completely threw it out the window. And, and there, there's actually a, there's a, a recent book that came out, um, the Lords of easy money by Christopher Leonard. Every time the author gives his own opinion on economic policy, like discard it, like his, his views are really, 
really bad. I, but but there's a lot there's a lot of fascinating history there, where because you you had even members of the Federal Reserve uneasy with how the Bernanke Fed was using these extreme policy tools after the crisis, and and the problem is is that when 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 an economy gets addicted to to cheap money, there's there's consequences to that, and and so we, what we have. You know, and, and this goes beyond simply inflation too. And the, the inflation is simply one aspect of it. This, this large corporate consolidation. So, like the the concerns about big tech censorship. A big part of that is that when you're in a low interest rate environment, and you're a big institute, you're, you're a big business, your ability to take on debt is subsidized by that Federal Reserve policy. And so, if you're Facebook and you want to buy Instagram or WeChat or whatever, what you're you're not having to take out you know, pay for but out of, out of cash you're you're taking on debt to make these acquisitions, and the, that debt was made unnaturally cheap because of the extreme low interest rate policies that the Fed was pushing, and so what we've done is we've you know the, the, the and then you also have cultural consequences because if if you were out there and you and you listen to Dave Ramsey who tells you never use your credit card and that debt is bad and pay off your mortgage at the fastest rate you can, well in a, in a sane world and just world that's good advice. The problem is, is that we're living in a clown world. And so if you are paying off your mortgage, you know, as quickly as you can, you know, when you, when you're borrowing at 3%, you know, that's not necessarily, the, you know, when, when you have, infl- if you're, when you're living in an inflationary environment, you know, that's, you know, it, it, your inflation is at 6%, your mortgage is at 3%. Like you should be slow paying, paying off your, your mortgages because the debt, you, you, you know, your, your debt is inflating away faster than you can pay it off. And so you, you're, we, we are actively rewarding short-term decision-making at the expense of long-term decision-making where we're, 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 we're destroying our capital base. Um, if, if you're, if you're an insurance company, if you're a pension fund and, and you know, you need, you know, historically you would, you would own a lot of government bonds, you know, very, very safe products that had a yield to it because you need reliable returns later on to pay off the pensioners that are now retiring. Well, what we've done is with low, low interest rates, we've made those pension funds and those insurance companies have to buy a lot, have a lot more exposure to the stock market because conservative assets are, are yielding you nothing. And so therefore, you're having to now buy Uber stock. You're having to buy Netflix stock. And so we've, we've pushed so much risk into traditionally conservative investors. If you, if you, want to, if you were parking your money at the bank with, with no interest rate, you're not getting any returns. So, so why wouldn't you put it in the stock market and gamble, right? We, we, we've, we've massively increased the risk in the financial system. And then when you create, then when you have a black swan event, like, you know, nobody could have prevented coronavirus, right? Then, then that's where that risk really pops up. And, and, and when you start, and now that they're having to reverse these policies to deal with that inflation issue, you're going to end up, I think we're going to end up finding that there's a lot of very, very large businesses that are going to be considered systemically important. Because they're, they're, you know, they, they, the, the impact that they're going to have when they fail in the economy is going to be huge. And so we, and, and of course, the, the, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's normal people that work in paycheck to paycheck. They're the ones that never benefited from this, from this recovery, right? At, at the, about, during the Trump years, you started seeing it significantly, some, some increase in like worker wages and things like that. Average Americans were totally screwed by the policies of the last 10 years. If you are in Wall Street, if, if, if the more exposure you had to stocks or financial assets, you were doing, you know, good times were here again. You were, you were making hand over fist, particularly during 2020. Um, that's why you had so many people like jumping into Robinhood and, and getting their exposure into stocks, right? You know, I'm, you know, investing in companies that they had no idea what the underlying businesses were. Yeah. You know, that's, that's – and, and there's consequences to this that are – I don't think the Federal Reserve fully understands, and I, I would question anyone to 
to make the argument that they do. And, it, and there's there's a lot of stuff here that's that's should be troubling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there's no shortage of troubling, troubling issues here. What would be the Austrian answer to? I mean, I know there, there's a lot of a lot of problems and issues, but I got just this inflationary issue that we've been talking about the last few minutes. Well, what, the way that Austrians kind of view booms and busts generally, what, what makes us different is that the policy solutions to a boom and bust is to try to reverse the bust, right? To the Austrians, the bust is important. The bust is what heals. The bust is what allows for the liquidation of bad loans to be made. And, and that, look, look, so that, that, that answer would have meant, um, you know, banks in 2008 making a bunch of bad mortgages would have, would have failed. And so we would have had a failure of a lot of banks. And like there would have been, there would have been real pain in that. Like, you know, people that, you know, there, 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 there are consequences to that. The, I, what, what Austrians would kind of argue, though, is that there's no way of bypassing that. You know, you, you only kind of shift those costs either in the future and to other people, right? Um, often, you know, maybe, maybe the government, you know, like the, the Fed comes in and buys out all those sort of things. So now the, the, the Federal Reserve and by that extension, the taxpayers are now on the hook for it. Um, like the Federal Reserve now owns more mortgages than any other institution in the country, which, again, in the time of rising interest mortgage rates like we'll see how that goes um yeah. and and so so the austrian understand you know, the, the way that we would view things is that the problem fundamentally is the government manipulation of money and credit and that if we want to create a society that can have sustainable growth and and to not be governed by these these crazy winds of booms and busts that we need to allow the market to, to, to handle money and banking the same way that it hand, handles every other service and I think if you're looking for like real policy solutions, you know, Ron Paul would talk about ending the Fed, and I think that's that should be the objective. Um, a piece of that would simply to be a, allow for competition with the Fed. And so, uh, uh, what I've been talking to uh, some congressional candidates and, and Senate candidates and things like that is that if, if Republicans really wanted to have an answer to this, and, and I think they need one. If you're if looking at polling, inflation is the number one political issue out there, and Republicans' answer is kind of generic rhetoric about cutting spending, which they've never done, right? You know, so I, I don't really, I don't, I don't have faith. In the end because, and because I, I mean, Trump ran on this. Trump in 20, 2016 was on CNBC saying low interest rates screw over the little guy. And then when you get in power, he was, you know, let's keep rates as low as possible, even when the economy is growing, because you don't want to be the person that sees the bubble collapse on you. Like that's, that's not yeah. good for your, your electoral outcome, right? So assuming that Republicans aren't going to get serious about spending and, and do the, the really painful reforms necessary, the best thing would simply be allowing average Americans to have lifeboats off. And, and you know, if, if you allow, again, I would eliminate capital gains taxes on gold, silver, cryptocurrency, all these alternative assets that can be, you know, if, if, if you allow Americans to save their, their, you know, save in Bitcoin rather than the dollar and then cash out when they need to make purchases without having to pay, you know, the capital gains on that, I think that would be a situation where Americans can start taking, you know, it would be in a much stronger situation. It, it, and, and so that's something that could be done within any sort of tax cut bill, um, which only needs 50 votes, which I think procedurally is, is a very good thing given how divided American politics is. And I don't expect that to solve anytime soon. Um, but you allow Americans to save outside of the dollar because I, I don't think there's a way of saving the dollar at this point. I don't think there's a way of saving the Fed. The only thing that is keeping us afloat is, again, the fact there's nowhere else to go with your money. You know, you, you can't take your money. You know, I, I think conservatives are, are overly bullish on China. Like, I, I don't think China's really an economic threat. I think they're closer to the Soviet Union in the mid-1980s, which collapsed, you know, their economy collapsed on them because of their own reckless. The, the beauty of, of central planning is that it doesn't work for anyone. It's not just bad yeah. for Americans, yeah. right? 
Um, yeah. So I don't think China's the rival there. I, I uh, you know, I, I don't think. I mean, Europe is 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 destroying itself in a variety of ways. You know, there's nowhere else to go, and that's what's keeping the dollar to be as strong as it is. Um, but I, I think that it, what will be interesting is when people start moving to gold, Bitcoin, non-politicized forms of money. And the more that we can allow Americans to do that now, I think the better off we're going to be in the long run. And I'd, I would love to start seeing, you know, if, if Florida stopped holding cash and said start buying gold, I think that would do a lot for state sovereignty in ways that are interesting, which you know, you've had Texas create a gold bank. You've had other places kind of do interesting things. Wyoming's done some interesting stuff with Bitcoin. So those are some of the policy tools that I would, I would like to see and try to navigate this sort of stuff. Hey guys, just a quick break to talk to you about my new sponsor here on the podcast, Zencaster. Zencaster is the tool that I use to record the remote interviews that I do here for the podcast. Whenever I decided that I was going to start doing remote interviews, talking to people who I would have to do over, line, uh, over the internet, I looked at several different tools. I didn't want to use Zoom because honestly, Zoom just doesn't give you a really good quality product at the end in terms of uh, audio and video quality. I looked at some of the other uh, services out there, but I didn't find anything that was easy to use and that worked as well as Zencaster. I love Zencaster because they have tools for running post-production. They give you separate audio and video files for both you and your guests, uh, and they come all in super high quality, crystal clear audio, HD video that you can't get from using other uh, over-the-internet uh, streaming services. I love Zencaster and Zencaster is offering my listeners a 30% off of their pro plan for three months whenever you use my link to sign up. So just go to the link that I have in the description below or in my show notes and you can sign up for a free trial of Zencaster and then to get 30% off your first three months with a pro account. I love Zencaster. I've been using them uh, for the podcast for uh, at least a year now and I highly recommend them. So go uh, and sign up through that link so that you can get 30% off your Zencaster Pro account. Now, let's get back into this episode. So, that, yeah, that's where one of the potentials of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies come in. Uh, I, I noticed that you usually only say Bitcoin and not crypto. Are you uh, a fan of crypto in general or do you are you only a fan of or interested in the potential of like just Bitcoin? I, I, I'm pretty open-minded, but I do think that there are, I, I think that there is a lot of scams in crypto. I, I think a lot of people underestimate the benefits that Bitcoin has, which again, is, is, is you know, it, it, there's, there's not a third-party foundation in charge of it. There's not a CEO of Bitcoin where if he dies tomorrow, everything crashes. You know, it's boring. It's, it's old technology, but it works. And I, I think that there are benefits to that simplicity. And I think ultimately, what gives Bitcoin its value will necessarily be the, how, how so that it's so far uh, 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 the state can't control it. And I think it's a lot easier for the state to control Ethereum. I think a state, the state's a lot easier to control some of these other cryptocurrencies. Could we have a situation where you have a lot of, of, of other cryptocurrencies operating alongside of it? Maybe I'm not going dis- to dismiss that. Um, I, I think it'd be I think it'd be arrogant to dismiss any sort of outcome. Um, and and I, I think that there is a, a arrogance that can come into some the similar stuff because we see the economic logic of something like, you know, you had a lot of people that, that bought a ton of gold in 2010 expecting hyperinflation and it didn't work. And so th- and, and because, because there's a lot of irrationality and, you know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff that, that can lead to things not playing out in the short term. So I, I don't want to be overly um, and, 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 you know, maybe maybe there are some currencies that are going to have unique bells and whistles. That, that make it you know more beneficial uh, that, that, that provide values unique from Bitcoin itself I, just, I think Bitcoin if 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 you're a normal person 
and you're just looking to protect yourself and you're not going to try to you know obsess over trading and things like that you know my suggestion is just to buy and hold bitcoin and and you know you might you might not be getting the most high upside play but i, I think holding bitcoin responsibly which means you know not having it on exchanges you know knowing how to manage your own wallet to me that is the safest way of of saving with bitcoin and everything else you know play that at your own risk and 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 do whatever um i and i also think there's value in and and not just simply being 100% in on bitcoin either like i i own some gold i, I own some silver like i think there is value and because again who knows what's going to happen um you know i and i i think again i think economics at its best it teaches you two lessons it teaches you who is ripping us off and it teaches you humility and if you don't have those two takeaways and you're not understanding economics properly and and so that's kind of yeah i've had to learn some of these lessons the hard way but uh, that's kind of where i am at right this at this point yeah <laughs> so there's this there's some interesting things going on in the news that i think uh presents some uh that, that calls for some you know thoughtful analysis from people who are typically free market guys um and that being this controversy or fight going on between disney and florida uh, you being in Florida, I'm sure that you're very, very aware of everything going on. But, uh, you know, so uh, DeSantis just signed in that uh, they're taking away Disney's special tax privileges as a direct consequence of their involvement in the parental rights and education bill. Um, you know, typically free market guys uh, and libertarian leaning people don't like see- to see the government responding or uh doing what you know what this you know appears to be on the surface punishing uh a private entity for political speech uh what's your take on all that going on right now and uh the implications it has or you know what it calls for analysis from a free market perspective well one one important part that i think it's overlooked on that bill is that it 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 doesn't take away those privileges until next year and i think that there is an intentional time delay there which I, I think might end up leading to a, a peace treaty um, down the line if if Disney plays ball, which I I, I think is interesting because I, it is something where um, you know my, my positions have changed a great deal on this being in Florida and seeing that a lot of the tools that made DeSantis so powerful or no, so effective, let me put it that way. In COVID were things that I would typically be against, right? One of the things that separated Florida from a lot of other states is that he reined in he, he declawed what local governments could do um so if, if you were a, a local school board you could not decide to mask your kids right he took away that power um which as as a as a political decentralist at heart that, that prefers to have decisions made as close to the people as possible that goes against that the problem is is that what he recognizes that you have a a federal regime that was using every tool at its disposal to create you know to, to decentralize Fauciism to decentralize what was an authoritarian regime, um, which is what we had. A part of that was also corporate enforcement. And so, you know, when, when it came to governing the uh, vaccine mandates, it was corporate America far more than the state that was effectively the enforcement wing. And, you know, I'm a property rights guy. I, I don't think that the government has any business on telling a, you know, telling a business who they can and cannot hire. The problem is, is that we're living in a world where one, we, we have a, a civil rights regime. We do not have a property rights regime. I would prefer a property rights regime, but what I've come to, and at least this is the rationalization I've given to myself. You know, if, if, if a, you know, libertarian, a libertarian out there wants to say this is being, uh, uh, you know, selling out principles, you know, perhaps there's some truth in that. 
Um, but I, I think that if, 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 if we're the only ones that care about our principles and they're used against us, then I, I think that it's going to be detrimental to our liberty. And so if, if you only have the right to discriminate against political dissidents, which is the way that I'd classify anyone who was questioning Fauci in the, in the vaccine, then you're going to have private tyranny against political dissidents. And I think that's bad for liberty. And to a certain extent, I can't, I'm not going to go along with it because I want the world to play by these set of rules that I, I personally hold. Some, you know, the only, ultimately, what protected my liberty was not the Constitution. It was not an appeal to natural rights. It was someone in power that cared about protecting my liberty in the form of Ron DeSantis. And so when you look at the, at the Disney bill, you know, what you had there is for, for one, like Disney acted in a way where for, for, like, there's, there's two different components of it. One is that Disney got involved in the smear campaign about the bill where, where they, you know, when, when they themselves were using the don't say gay language, which, you know, and, and I know from some of the behind the scenes stuff to it, like, you know, you had an agreement with DeSantis and the Disney corporation where Disney was going to meet gay employees at Disney that had promised the bill. And then Disney blasted it with that sort of media created smear. And that made DeSantis view Disney as a bad faith actor, which I, I don't think is, 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 is wrong. Really? Um, the Wait, second so thing. Can you, can you back up on that for a little bit? There was a, there was another sure. agreement that, that was, that they had kind of behind the scenes before that whole scandal broke out into the open. Yeah. So, 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 so D- Disney got into the political, got, got into the political game. We're, we're at the end after the bill was, was, was passed, Disney went and publicly blasted the bill as the don't say gay bill after they were already trying to work on like a, 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 you know, a fair dialogue about it. Right. So, so that, you know, and, and so again, like they, 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 they got, you know, they, they were, they became an active mouthpiece to a propaganda campaign against the state against, you know, lying, deceiving what was in the bill. Hmm. Um, the second part of it though, is then you had the release tapes about Disney going out of its way to promote queerness, their word, not mine and their children's content. And this gets into a, a larger issue, which is the way that you have very powerful companies seeking not profit as their guiding standpoint in, in terms of the operations of their business, but that they have a responsibility for other principles, be it you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or uh, uh, the e- ESO scores, right? Um, in, the, in the past decade, we've seen a massive escalation from corporate America to demote this, to, to deprioritize profit where the consumers have say in how a company operates, right? Because it's kind of the consumer sovereignty sort of angle, um, you know, to know some things matter more than profit. And it's, it's these principles and these principles are all to the left. And this goes back to the conversation we were having about the fed because we've created a situation where these companies have are much larger in size than they otherwise would because of monetary policy subsidies. The, the biggest shareholders of these companies are BlackRock and these asset management companies that have the same ideological agenda. And so I think that if you're a, a libertarian and you are trying to use free market solutions to combat a problem where we no longer have a free market, like this, this is not a capitalistic system that we hold. You know, I, I think that you're 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 not playing by the rules of the, of the game as it exists, and and, and I, I I don't think that's good for liberty. I don't think that is good for for anything. I I think you you we have deluded ourselves if you think that this can be solved without power. 
And effectively what they want is they want to neuter, they, they, they want to give a monopoly of this use of corporate, this, this corporate state access. They want to give the left the monopoly of it because the only thing corporations have ever had to fear for a very long time are left-wing activists because conservatives have been willing to defend them as private businesses and you know yada 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 now you have corporations they have to worry about what governor DeSantis is going to say if they're if they're if they're based in florida and I, again as a floridian i i think that helps create a very I, I think that's a useful guard against progressive hegemony and and in the use of corporate america as an extension of the regime and and again yeah. you know it's something that they in 2019 me probably would have been against this. Um, but I, I do not take for granted the freedom that I've enjoyed that many, many people have not. And, and, you know, there, there's Ron Paul or Ron DeSantis has done more for my freedom than even the great Ron Paul did. And so I, I, I think I'd be ungrateful if, if I was more, uh, willing to just kind of, of, of not think outside pre-existing political principles and, and, and not try to appreciate and, and, and respect the decision-making that's going on through the steps that he's taking. And so that's kind of been my own personal journey in some of these issues. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems as though that the hope would be is to push some of these, these corporations, whether you know, it be Disney in this case, you know, back into some sort of a political neutrality. Right. Um, which like you pointed out that, that bill has what well, it has like a year, is it before yes. it goes into effect, yes. which does seem as though it was designed to maybe give them uh, some time for remor- I, remorse and repentance. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I think it has taken a, gr- a grenade to a, 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 a you know negotiation and pulling the pin, keeping the handle squeeze, the hammer squeeze, and saying, "Okay, now 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 you see we mean business," because, because the whole thing's in Florida. The you know, Mickey Mouse was the most powerful actor in Florida for a very long time. And I mean, to, to, the, to the extent where 20, 2021, not that long ago, the rat was able to carve out a big, juicy carve out in Ron DeSantis's uh, anti-social media censorship thing. And, and you had people in the governor's, yeah. you, know, you, know, you know, they were very concerned about making sure Disney was taken care of because they just have that sort of weight on things. Um, you, you, you know, they, they have, they've, they've effectively, they had effectively bought a large percentage of the Republican legislature. You you had chamber of commerce types fighting tooth and nail against the vaccine mandate bill, and you had the leadership, the Republican leadership in the state of Florida, that was trying to, dis- to distract voters by saying we're going to stop Biden's vaccine mandate and say nothing about the corporate vaccine mandate. Like this is something that you just just as someone that that watches Florida politics a lot more than any sane person should, though watching state politics is always better than watching federal politics in that that circus. Uh, you're seeing how quickly this has changed. Has been very interesting, and and, and yeah. it, it, it's a whole new world in terms of Florida politics. And I think that I'm, I'm interested to see to what degree are the lessons learned in Florida shared with other Republican governors around the country, and, and to what degree is, are we actually seeing a Republican party that can defend Republican voters? Uh, as, as as much as I, I think Trump was was a great uh, a reset from from what the the, the GOP had been, I, I think there's 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 a lot of good things that came from that regime, that that, that administration. You know, I I, th- I think that DeSantis is showing an effectiveness of power that we haven't seen in a very very long time, and and all the right people are concerned and upset, and and the fact that they have to be a little bit more upset than they were two years ago, I I think is a good thing. Even if you disagree with DeSantis, like you know, if if you simply want to see not 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 live under a one party regime like China, I think anything that can kind of just gum up the works, there's 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 liberty to be had 
in not allowing a monopoly of power as well. Um, and, and so again, if, if you want to be in New Hampshire and have a different sort of guiding principles, more power to you. I'm, I'm, I, I still, still very much believe in political decentralization. Um, I just think that DeSantis is showing tools that Republicans can use that I hope uh, will lead to some changes in the, down the road. Yeah. Yeah, man, I hate that we only have about eight minutes to spend on each one of these topics uh, because there's so many more questions and things I have popping in my head. I, I need, I wish we had like a Joe Rogan amount of time. <laughs> we need three hours to be able to adequately go through any of these. So I, I wanted to get to this earlier, but let, let's talk about your m- making a little bit more personal turn, talking about your spiritual journey. I know that uh, from following you on Facebook, you. Uh, you kind of went through the, or you've been going through the spiritual journey the last couple of years. Uh, tell us about that and uh, and some of the changes that you've been experiencing. Well, again, it's just recognize you know again you know ever since you know my libertarian days you know it's it's individualism kind of becomes its own faith system in itself you know liberty and and what I've you know kind of the recognition that individualism for for one that that that. Individualism itself, I think, is based in a lie that, that we are – we're not born as individuals. We're born into families. We're born into nations. We're born into stories like that, that, that transcend us as an individual. And recognizing that you know, ego and narcissism and can, and, and can, can, allow, can lead to us to rationalizing things that are not good. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, I – I, I think that if, if you are that, – that, that it is easy for libertarians to fall in the trap of pursuing individualism itself as the end goal. And, and I, you know, it leads to you know, you know, the original sin, right, was, was, was very individualistic. You know, the, the, the belief that uh, uh, you know, the, the, the judgment of, of Adam and Eve was, was better than God. Um, I, I think that, that, that there is a great – that – Failure to appreciate the importance of things bigger than yourself has often been an Achilles heel of libertarians, which has led to consequences that are detrimental to liberty itself. Mm. And and so my own journey on this, and and you know, I'm 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 still searching for churches. I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly where. Where I where where I'm going to end up in terms of uh, 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 the larger theological uh, uh, you know, d- different debates, and that you know it, it has been very interesting um, pursuing a new you know something that that I want to be very important and, and foundational in my life, and and, and yeah. kind of dealing with with a new frontier here, um, and and visiting different churches and, and understanding the different different histories here. Um, but something that that I, I've always been very that I found very persuasive to me. Has been history, and and recognizing the the profound difference that the example of Christ had on human morality as a whole, that that how how pivotal it has been to the success and growth of, of Western civilization, pivotal to America and it becoming you know the, the center that it had, you know e- even if one was not persuaded you know even if one had had no broader theological appreciation I, I i think that refusing to recognize the 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 empirical impact of this and and to believe that this was this this everything always gets better the modernity is always better than what came before like this there's a lot of these trappings that i've i've fallen into 
in the past that, that other libertarians have fallen into that I find lacking. And so, you know, it has brought you know it it has brought me on a journey where we're going to trying to appreciate um, this this new frontier and and to 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 come to understand and and appreciate what it means to take God seriously um, and it's something that you know it, it, it's something that we're, we're we're you know growing up in in you know 1990s America like you know there's so much that we take for granted. And just how Christianized America was, and we, I, I think as we've seen an acceleration on the left to promote cultural views that are explicitly hostile to that, and seeing the decay that I think comes with that again, like I, I think Europe is a a in a very very bad place, and I think secularism is driving a big part of that. That, that the fear yeah. of death, the 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 the, the inability to you know the, the the disinterest in having children you know they're they're they're, they're I, I think a lot of progressivism is motivated by a hostility to humanity itself and i think that is a byproduct of a, a you know per, 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 you know a, a very perverse form of of liberal secularism mm-hmm. um and and, and I, I you know there's Mises and, and Murray Rothbard, you know, they they themselves were were, were agnostic or atheistic Jews. So I'm not going to say that you know, you know, you, you can't be a good person with, with without a higher faith. Um, I think that there's always outliers out there. But the problem is, the problem is when you you, you ground a society based off of outliers, I think that that, mm-hmm. that, that creates mis- uh, issues. And so you know, the more that I see civilization coming to this dark place, the more that I. Th- I, and, and I come to realize my own failings. I find taking God seriously as a way of you know, filling some of these holes that have been in my life, and then yeah. I, and, 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 and holes that I think are in society right now. And you know, it, it, trying to take that one step at a time and, and trying to be a better person for it. And that's that's kind of my own journey. And it's a very 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 you know at my own pace but uh yeah it, it has been been, a, been a, a, an interesting frontier to to to, yeah. to to experience yeah absolutely it sounds like it and those are some really profound thoughts um one of my favorite my my favorite cultural commentator and uh christian thinkers a guy named oz guinness i don't know if you've ever heard of him um he's been on this show th- uh three times so okay if you're interested you can go go back yeah. and hear some of him but he uh he has this way of saying, I don't know if he coined it or if he took it from someone else, but um, he says that we live in a cut flower civilization. And what he means by that is that um, we've been living with, uh, it, up until very recently, with all of the benefits and fruits and mm-hmm. beauty that came from being rooted in the Judeo-Christian worldview. And so Western civilization had, to use the metaphor, that you know the, these flowers uh, grown from the soil of the biblical worldview, but then a hundred years ago or so, maybe maybe a little bit more, you know, we're cut. And for a while, the beauty remains Mm -hmm. and they, they look alive. Uh, but eventually they're going to start to die and decay. And and I think that's, that, that's what you were talking about with that recognition of what happens whenever we abandon that, that biblical worldview that brought about so much human flourishing. Well, and it's interesting because you know this kind of ties back to the economic conversation because one the kind of the, the, the economists that radical that that really changed the way that 
economists viewed the science of economics was John Maynard Keynes. And John Maynard Keynes was born into a very powerful elite British family, went to all the top schools, and he was a satanic pedophile. <laughs> Hmm. Like he, I mean, he, the, I mean, he, he was very autistic. So like he took like detailed notes of like all of his personal relationships. And like, I mean, he would literally traveled to these poor countries in the Mediterranean and would rent the boys from the families who were destitute. And, and, you know, that's, that's the way that they made money from these people. And yeah. You read the writings of him and his colleagues and, and partners and it was all about explicitly the goal for breaking down and destroying the Christian bourgeois values of the West mm. and yep. the need to do that to, to accomplish great big things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go back and, and you know, um, um, you know uh, if you, the French Revolution, obviously, I think a, a profound example of what a society that, 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 that worships reason and not God mm-hmm. falls into. Um, you know, the, the influence of, of there's a, a fascinating book that, um, we have a PDF on, on Mises.org is left, leftism revisited, um, by an Austrian noble whose name I can't pronounce, but like he highlighted the, the viewpoints of like Marquis de Sade, how, how, how prevalent they became within the modern intellectual left in the, in the 20th century, despite him kind of yeah. dying in obscurity, Napoleon threw him in jail, which I think was a good thing for Napoleon. Um, neither here nor there. I've become a lot more, a lot more fond of him of late. Um, um. You know, where again, like you, you read this guy, and like it is, uh, you know, abortion on demand, um, the, the need to sexualize children at an early age, the destruction of, fa- of, of fatherhood. There's a I mean, you, this is the stuff that is now. I don't, th- I don't think it's hyperbole, and I always try to check myself. Am I, am I falling to the trap of, of being hyperbolic with with people I disagree with? I don't think it's true in this case, where I think a lot of his views are mainstream within the modern progressive left, and not just in America but broadly. And and these these are bad people. And I think that it's fair to judge. I, I, I think that, 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 that you know, one of the things that I love at the Mises Institute is that my intellectual heroes were, 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 were men I could be proud of. Louis von Mises, I think, was a great man. Murray Rothbard was, was, was a great scholar and a great man. Lou, Lou, uh, Lou, Roth, um, Lou Rockwell, who's the founder of the Institute, was a great man. Um, you know, those personal examples matter, and 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 I, I think it is not a coincidence that people with very very bad ideas live very very bad lives, and you know that's so the, so the goal is to to not be like that, and uh, one step at a time. Yeah, yeah. So in this in this journey, and um, you know, and in, in, in learning more about uh, about faith and uh, theology and so on, how has that interacted with the work that you do? As, as an economist, do do those do those overlap? Has have you found that learning more about uh, the Bible or the Christian worldview have you found it to inform what you've wh- what you see in economics and society and so on? Well, I, I think it, 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 it the nice thing is that I think it reaffirms a lot of the views I already had, which perhaps might be a you know might might be an issue in some ways, kind of bias, but but I, yeah. I I do think that the core of Money, like honest money, being so foundational to a thriving, prosperous society is important. And you know, I I think that it, it, because it, it is what what has the value is is not the the picture of Caesar on the coin. It is that it, it represents truth. It, it 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 allows individuals to to make honest decisions with what they value and the market kind of ends up responding 
to that. And I think it's precisely when it is the face of Caesar on the coin and not truth um, that that's that is what that's what's brought us to the society we have now. And I think it's just, it's just it's 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 and it's, and it's interesting too. So if you look back in history, like you know, I'm a big fan of of the Jacksonians and like their arguments for like laissez-faire. You know, it's kind of a populist free market view of things was, was very much grounded on civil virtue rather than a kind of materialism. And I, and I think that's mm. one of the problems that the capitalism has. Most of our great defenses have been, oh, look at how much cheap stuff we've got. And, and I'm not trying to dismiss cheap, cheap, cheap stuff. And I think anyone that does, chances are they've lived a very privileged life. And so mm. they don't, they can't fully appreciate, you know, how much it means to be able to have access to the things that, 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 you know, you know low, lower your own misery. Yeah. Um, but, but, but that those as it, it is, it is, it is, we can't defend, I think, a good society truly with simply materialistic impulses and has to be something larger than us. Um, and we should be, we should be in the interest of, pro- of, of, of promoting a civilly good society. And, and again, these, these are, and, and, and that, that then leads to making moral judgments that, you know, you can't necessarily make purely on, on individualistic grounds. You can't make them necessarily purely on, on, you know, liberal grounds. I think that, that, that it requires having a value set beyond reason and then the question is what is that founded upon and the more and more i think god and christ is the strongest foundation for that rather than anything else that we can we can rationalize for ourselves and i think that you know that 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 is so so i i i, I it hasn't changed necessarily um my, my economic views but it has given me greater appreciation for you know it, 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 for them if that if that if that makes sense yeah, absolutely. When, and I think that's that's a good result, and that's what should be expected. Uh, if you already, if you're following something um, that's not necessarily quote unquote scriptural, right? Whether it be an economic uh, methodology, uh, scientific uh, philosophy, or a- anything else in the world, if it's true, right? If it's true because it's true, well, then the Bible is not going to contradict it and it's not, and it shouldn't change it. If anything, it should reinforce it and, and, and make it stronger because one of the things we believe is, as, as Christians is that, uh, since God is truth with truth with a capital T, we would say, right. He, uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, a guy who passed away in the eighties named Francis Schaeffer, uh, he used to say, you know, uh, the, the Bible and the Christian worldview is true truth. <laughs> he used to say, and his odd little way he would articulate things. But, uh, but, but if that is the case, then all truth that exists, even outside of the Bible, applying to all of life, e- even economics, uh, belongs to him. It, it, it's an expression of and a, and a revelation of the way that he designed the world to operate. So, uh, so yeah, I think that uh, a reaffirmation, um, uh, yeah, like you said, it should be tested because on the one hand, it could be confirmation bias. But on the other hand, it might just be a re- reaffirmation and that should be celebrated. Well, one of the interesting things is that like Murray Rothbard's economic history, you know, one of the things he highlights is, is the degree to which a lot of the great early economic advances were made within, you know, the Catholic Church in, in, in that case, you know, and, and it just, it, it, this, this, you know, often this, this sort of, of false dichotomy that, that kind of the modern world sort of pits on, you know, scientific advancement and faith, you know, it's, 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 it's a lie. And that is, and what's interesting too, is I think even within the kind of liberal dynamic, you know, if you look at you know, John Locke, you know, and, and a lot of the, the Anglo liberal perspective, I mean, it was very much with, uh, you know, respect for God, you know, and, and that, you know, so, so the two do not have to be in conflict and, um, yeah. and, and, but, it, but, but 
I think I, you know, I think trying to do one without the others is, uh, I, I question whether that can survive in the long term. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I agree, and and uh, and yeah, and I think we're witnessing and experiencing the logical conclusions of what happens where you do try to sever that foundation. Well, though we've gone well over our time, I apologize for that, but man, uh, it's been, it's been great and, uh, wish we, wish we had more time, but we'll, I'll go ahead and bring us to a close. Uh, any, anything you want to plug before we go point, anything you want to point people to have them check out ways to get in, uh, ways to connect with you. Yeah. Well, for, if, if anyone out there is interested in more, uh, Mason's through content, one of the things we've been trying to do the last, uh, last year or so is to produce a lot more, um, kind of beginner friendly content. Um, so we've got a, a nine part sort of basic economic video series that you can find at begineconomics.com. Um, and then we also have a, uh, just last week released what has government done to our money, um, which will, which will end up being a nine part series, um, about, you know, money in the fed and all these issues that we talked about today. And you can find that at what has government done to our money.com. Great. Uh, I'm going to have all of that linked in the show notes so that if anyone is interested in checking it out, just click on the link to the show notes in the description below and you'll be able to find those video series and the resources from Mises. So, uh, so just want to thank you again, really enjoy this conversation and enjoyed having you with us on filter. Well, thank you so much for having me, Aaron. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.